welcome, welcome, welcome to Working That Is Chrononaut Chronicles. My name is Bill, and I will be your guide on this particular Sonic adventure. Uh, the show is, of course, sponsored by MysticalWares.com, which is Derek Condit's metaphysical supply shop. Uh, he does have a brick-and-mortar location in Mount Vernon, Washington, so if you're in the area, definitely check it out. If not, stop on by the website, MysticalWares.com. But Derek will not be with us uh, today or probably for the rest of the month of September due to some big upcoming changes with uh, buildings, locations, and whatnot. So uh, he will be busy with all of that. Uh, but what what is it that we exactly do here on Chrononaut Chronicles? What is the point of this show? Uh, well, we have uh, essentially four segments, and we'll start with the last one, which is the sword segment. And this week... Well, first of all, the goal of the sword segment is to, I was thinking about this more this past week, and I think it is a reminder. It's simply meant to be a reminder that uh, we are all uh, capable of miraculous things, and a lot of the times we just need a reminder of how truly uh, splendid and and full of potential and how much power that, uh, that is within ourselves. So... The, the sword segment, that's the power, or the, the goal behind that. And this week we'll be doing uh, The Sabbath by Neville Goddard. It's a book, or it's a chapter from his Freedom for All book published in 1942. And then before that, we do have the silver segment. And the goal of that segment is to learn something new. And when we do cover um, current events, we try to look for the silver linings. And before that, we have the gratitude segment because gratitude is a key, key ingredient. In, in every working, particularly this one, or it should be anyway, so you can never have too much gratitude. And then the what we start off the show with is just a quick look at the old Farmer's Almanac to kind of expand our awareness of what uh, energies we could uh, possibly capitalize on and work with during this coming week. So with that said, uh, today actually is uh, Monday, so we have, we have Jupiter and the Moon conjunct today. And we have uh, Ju- Jupiter's actually going stationary today, and it will be in retrograde until December 31st. And on uh, Tuesday, tomorrow, we have Uranus and the Moon conjunct. Wednesday, there is an inferior conjunction of Mercury, and the inferior conjunction is, means that it's between the Sun and the Earth, and that is Wednesday. Uh, other Planetarily, that's about it, according to the Almanac. Uh, fun little fun fact, uh, Google was incorporated uh, today, actually, is the anniversary of Google's incorporation in 1998. And just another, I guess, fun fact, I did see a news story. uh, Big shout out to the CIA. Want to thank you guys for that? Yeah, yeah, they're moving, uh, Google is moving to El Salvador or some, some, some uh, Central American company or uh, country. When the, when the rats start leaving the ship, so they're abandoning California and they're going South America somewhere. Um, one more quick note on the Almanac. And uh, because, of re- because of the retrograde of Jupiter, this reminded me that there is actually seven planets that will all be going retrograde at the same, roughly at the same time in, in the coming months. Um, I put a, a, did I put that in there in the chat for you guys? No, I didn't. There's an article here from standard.uk, standard.co.uk. Uh, Venus, Mercury, 
Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto are the seven planets that will all make a backwards move through the sky in the coming months. So uh, the word retrograde is used to describe backward motion, and science shows that all the planets in our solar system move in one direction on elliptical paths around the sun, meaning the retrograding planets only appear to be moving in reverse as we view them from our perspective on Earth. Astrologers believe this shifts uh, the shift affects humans as well as as well as the solar system, and link the appearance of the movement to significant changes here on Earth. So uh, the R E in retrograde symbolizes reflect, reassess, and reimagine. Overall, it's an opportune time to address any unresolved matters in our lives, whether related to health, communication, relationships, career, responsibilities, or personal power. Use it as a period for mastery. Although the retrograde happens for all, how it affects you will depend on your astrological house, something determined by your individual birth time and date. Uh, during this small window of intense retrograde action, be on alert for any profound shifts or thought-provoking insights around 4 September 2023. Uh, Mercury, the planet of communication, will positively aspect Jupiter, the planet of expansion, so carve out some time for journaling or meditation, as you may be surprised at what celestial wisdom drops in. So what are the seven planets and how they will affect us? Well, just real quickly here, won't get into all the nitty-gritty details, but Venus is retrograde from July 23rd to today, so September 4th. Uh, Mercury retrograde from August 27th to September 16th. Pluto, May 11th to October 22nd. Saturn is June 18th to November 4th. Uh, Neptune, July 1st to December 6th. And then uh, Jupiter retrograde. Uh, September 5th through December 31st. And Uranus retrograde is August 29th to January 27th of 2024. So I believe it looks like Jupiter was the last one to enter into that retrograde uh, status. Which will happen tomorrow, Tuesday. It is currently stationary. So a little bit longer than normal. Uh, almanac segment, uh, but moving on to gratitude, I will go first, just because uh, I've been talking, and why not? Uh, just a few seconds ago, actually, before I started uh, the Zoom call, I was out front setting up a new canvas tent to use on my excursion next week up into the great wilderness of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, so... Uh, there will be no show next week because I probably will be, uh, well, I know I will be out in the middle of nowhere somewhere. So that, uh, that is my gratitude for this week. And uh, I am joined by Adam and Ben this evening. Do you guys have any gratitudes you'd like to uh, bring to the, come to the table with? Adam? Not ignoring you there. I was just seeing if uh, Ben was with us. Yeah, I am. I don't, I was thinking about it today and I don't know if I have anything specific. Everything's just been, you know, it's kind of that end of summer going into fall and, uh, everything's still just kind of got that summertime flow to it. So, um, nothing in particular, 
you know. I have been looking forward to the season change and uh, sort of feeling it in the mornings. There's a bit of a nip in the air where I'm at, so. Yeah, I can uh, I can relate. I'm kind of getting excited for fall, even though I know that means I'm uh, probably going to have to turn the heater back on soon. But, uh, yeah, it's good for a change every now and again. It's something I get to, I forget that I should appreciate more being located where I am is that we, we get all four seasons, right? So. For sure, Adam. What uh, what what did you have on the yeah, agenda? Listen, uh, today was an amazing day. It's normally uh, sweltering hot, which it was, uh, but only to like eighty nine degrees in low humidity, like in the fifties. Uh, I'm I'm gonna give a big shout out to uh, the uh, the beginning of the end of summer, and uh, to that also the end of the hurricane season which i shouldn't be saying ending because we're ramping up into the height of it but uh yeah uh after september's over uh we have that beautiful beautiful winter so what four more weeks right we really start feeling things yeah i was gonna say the equinox is a week or uh let's see this thursday and then add two weeks so <laughs> yeah definitely happy for change i don't like to freeze uh i hate to be hot and uh, it's always nice that there's a smooth in between. Really, something uh, I guess I did want to mention because I don't really don't know where else to put it was uh, the the episode art for last week's episode, mental medicine. I've been using the uh, AI generated art creator nightcafe.com for the the show artwork. And I've only been recently putting them up on YouTube as the cover images, but I added it to the uh, Castos publication last week. And but anyway, the uh, I typed this prompt in to the the AI generator image thingy, and it comes back with me just one image because you, you can you can sort you know generate up to you know three, four, sixteen whatever images at a time, but I just chose to do the one, and it came back with a quincux. And for those of you who are not familiar with Coincux, it's essentially a, an, an, a uh, it's a symbol for the anima mundi, which is the, you know, the source, I guess, if you want to, it's that from which everything else comes. And what makes a Coincux, think of a, a cross, right? You have, and then there, you have a, the, uh, the center part, the, the, if the center part is, I don't know, I want to say accentuated, but clearly visible, you've got, so the four corners would be, kind of like the, uh, the four directions or the four elements is essentially i think what what more it's alluding to earth air wind and fire and you can you can see these mirrored in the four gospels uh, matthew mark luke and john right and then you'd have christ at the center or the anima mundi which is the fifth element which is you know the, the source right so uh, i just thought it was neat that that's what it came up with when i typed in mental medicine like i don't know I know somebody's building these AI things, but it's just super, I don't know, kind of uncanny to see that kind of symbolism come out of an AI-generated image, because it was pretty pretty metaphysical, I think. And all it got was, you know, mental and medicine, just those two words. So, I don't know, is, it, is that kind of creepy, or is that just me? Look, we've poured our minds into the internet. It's now being scraped and fed back to us. So, I mean, it's not surprising. 
in in a lot of ways it's going to be able to make connections that other people couldn't so um in a child's like way i mean it's it's kind of not surprising that it's gonna be getting overall uh themes that you would uh think only a sentient being would give yeah i guess there's a like an ai version of jesus where you can go and like he preaches 24 7 and you can get like blessings from from uh, ai priests and, and stuff i don't know it's been uh, interesting to watch evolve but moving i guess i don't know i just wanted to throw that in there because i thought it was neat that it spit that back out at me um let's see adam did you well actually i wanted to get this in first get this story in first i was thinking about this thinking about you while i was reading this so that maybe we'll get to your story but this is about green light therapy and how it could help with fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome which is uh, an ailment uh, which it's, it's pretty common i think fibromyalgia i know that it, it affects um, some people in my life that are important to me so uh, let's see what the article has to say green light therapy how much more woo woo could you get at first glance it seems utterly implausible that being in the presence of green light could affect pain but the few studies that have that have been done suggest it might help and there are reasons biologically to think it could with the generally poor information of many pain drugs oh sorry <laughs> with the generally poor performance of many pain drugs and the side effects they can cause it's easy to see why many people are giving such an easy and apparently side effect therapy a try side effect free therapy i think I forgot a word there in a new green light fibromyalgia trial green light based and oh, there's a lot of uh okay uh, actually, actually time out here there's a lot of uh scientific words in here i probably won't get right so i'm just going to do my best but it's it's, it's a study it's a novel non-pharmacological approach to fibromyalgia pain a pilot study it was time to take a look at what green light therapy is all about why might green light therapy help for one it may be able to increase energy and alertness by resetting one's circadian rhythm healthier bed and waking times reduce pain and enable better sleep by promoting melatonin production studies have shown that melatonin supplementation can be helpful in fibromyalgia fm green light therapy also appears to activate melanospin a light sensitive neurotransmitter in the eye that interacts with the part of the brainstem that plays a role in processing pain perhaps most significantly it stimulates the androgynous opioid system causing an increase in both beta endorphins and enkephalins both of which appear to be reduced in fibril fibro fm beta endorphins are very effective at reducing pain in fact they're 18 to 33 times better than morphine they also play a major role in stimulating the descending pain inhib inhibition pathways which appear to be broken in fibromyalgia fm since the endorphins kick in during exercise and may be responsible for the runner's high it's no surprise that in exercise study found that depleted that they found them depleted in fm both before and after exercise plus a small study found them reduced in both fm and 
CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. And another study found them reduced in CFS. Uh, green light therapy may also be regulating serotonin, another feel-good chemical, via the serotonin estrogen pathway that some believe plays a role in many pain disorders. Study evidence it says that not many studies have been done, but the results thus far have been good. A neuropathic pain animal model study found that green light therapy was able to turn down pain hypersensitivity. Digging deeper in 2023, rodent study found that green light therapy increased endogenous opioid levels and reduced neuroinflammation. The authors recommended that given the non-invasive nature of green light, this innovative therapy could be readily implementable in hospitals. A migraine study exposed patients who had not responded to migraine treatments to one to two hours daily of white light emitting diodes for 10 weeks, followed by a two-week washout period, followed by exposure for one to two hours daily to green light emitting diodes for 10 weeks. It produced a dramatic reduction in episodic migraine days, 7.9 to 2.4, and chronic migraine days, 22.3 to 9.4. Plus, there are some indications that green light therapy may ease the sensitivity to light in migraine. Psychotherapy conducted under green light also proved to be considerably more effective than done under white light in a small study. So, Adam, what uh, what do you think about this so far? I know that you've you've got a whole bunch of you've got an entire room rigged up with green lights, don't you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I've got uh, let's see, it's four of them set up in here, uh, in the studio, and yeah, I mean every sing single thing there seems on point with the research, but I mean it makes sense. And if you've ever had migraines and you've ever been exposed to green light, then um, you probably would notice the difference. So just from an experiential standpoint, I get it. And yeah, like they said, all the science and all the studies on it seem to be lining up and it's nature, right? You know, we've locked ourselves in sterile white boxes. We'd never touch the ground. Our feet are always in. Insulated. Yep. In casts, keeping your toes together like a ballerina. So yeah, this is a quite a lengthy article. For any of you uh, interested, you can find all of these links in Chrononaut Chronicles Telegram channel. If you haven't joined, uh, there is a link in the show notes. Yeah, and I consider even if you feel great, you know, uh, if it benefits people who are feeling bad, you know, I mean, it might energize you in a way that you don't understand. Yeah, uh, it's funny you said that, Adam, because I was uh, going to comment. I experiment with different wavelengths of light, but through different lenses. So I'll just put on the, you know, green lenses or yellow lenses or whatever, blue light blocking lenses a lot. Um, and I've noticed I've been wearing the green ones a lot lately and been feeling really good. Um, something about that green light, 
you know, a lot like what Bill was <laughs> describing, but it was for me, I didn't know what I was doing other than I noticed differences in how I felt, uh, just by using the different, different colored lenses. So it's interesting. That is cool. Adam gave me a purple. Oh, no, it's a violet. Mm-hmm. Violets, violet. Yeah, I daily I daily drive the uh, Purple Canyon brand of color therapy glasses uh, in the green. The green is my daily driver. I've actually got three pairs of them floating around. And they're inexpensive. They're only like eight bucks a piece, and they have really good clarity. Maybe 15 now, depending on the color, but well worth it. I just put my purple pair on right now and I can still still read the screen and everything. So Yeah, but they definitely do things, you know, seeing the red lights and things can actually, you know, uh tone you down or, you know, uh get you more ready to sleep. Uh uh I don't know, like seeing the the world through rose colored glasses or rose colored lenses. Uh you start wearing rose color and you feel like elevated. It gives you a cheerier, yeah. happier feeling. Uh so yeah, I was really I was gonna mention the the rose color for me um and then i've i've seen some other people talking about it recently too it's a very creative mm -hmm. uh state you get into and uh yeah i have these bright pink aviators that i put on and all of a sudden i've got a, a notebook and a pen in my hand you know yeah my my favorite brand of um safety glasses is a company called edge eyewear uh, they do like military specified glasses and they're cheap. They're like anywhere between like 10 and $30 for a set. Super hardy, super awesome. Um, and they have a rose colored pair that uh, I, over the years, I probably had a dozen of these pairs and I love them because they have a very similar color um, to uh, color therapy. Hello, muted. Uh, yeah, I was, just, I was looking at the card that you sent, or the, that came with the glasses you sent. From it was they're purple canyons too. Yep. And it says the it does it does say green for uh, suppresses migraines and evokes refreshment. So there you have it, purplecanyon.com for oops for some cheap, effective color therapy glasses. Uh, one more point on this before we wrap up just because this is uh from a, a doctor at ooh, pain management and opioid surveillance for duke health uh, dr googler uh, said that after treating pain for decades she was looking for a non-invasive and safe option she was encouraged by the fact that the participants in the study didn't want to return the glasses she said the response to her pre preliminary findings has been overwhelming, quite honestly. There's been an outpouring internationally of those asking for more information. Obviously, there is a huge patient population that is very excited at the opportunity to have something they can do for themselves to help with their pain that is not invasive and will not leave them with a lot of side effects. Next up for Dr. Guler are larger studies that assess green light exposure on different chronic pain conditions, which determine the most effective wavelengths to use, and functional MRI studies to understand what's happening in the brain. Uh, Googler doesn't think green light therapy will ever be the be-all and end-all for chronic pain. No one thing will probably ever do that. 
but even as an adjunct, she said, this could be huge. It's not clear which products work, work best, but most inexpensive green light glasses, lamps, and light strips can all be found on Amazon.com or PurpleCanyon.com. Uh, not sponsored. Uh, see the blog for details, studies, but in general, the participants use the light strips or the glasses for one to two hours a day. And then uh, once again, it just says that the study evidence is sparse, but that's just because there hasn't been a lot done. So hopefully we will learn more soon. And in the meantime, green light therapy seems like a safe and mostly inexpensive therapy to try. So try it out. it out all right let's see what else we have on docket oh i picked out oh adam did you want to go over the uh your, your article sure since we're on the adam train i did i did uh think about you when i was reading that I was like hey i know about this this isn't new information to me but yeah, well, it's certainly interesting. So um, I love the debrief. Um, and my friend Micah Hanks over there uh, wrote this article in particular. Um, so uh, oh, I didn't know Micah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Micah is the creator of the site and one of the contributing uh, writers to it as well. Um, so anyways, the story is, let's see. It is called Enigmatic, or I'm sorry, these Enigmatic, oh my God anatomic okay these amazing viking symbols used in the ancient encrypted messages keep one of history's strangest languages secret um and essentially you know if you've ever seen runes or seen the symbols you know um it is not just a symbol system it is a language that people used to write in but it has gone from being a 24 letter system down to a 16 letter system and there's no real explanation throughout history and why this has happened other than looking at changes in the way that people spoke and overlapping of um, the way that the runes would be pronounced because they were phonetic in their uh, creation. And that it's uh, postulated that as words changed, you need less of these to be represented and they got dropped out of the official language. Um, but it's amazing when you have these things that are just lost to time. Um, and I even think of like George Orwell, 1984. You know, what kind of thing could have been used? You've taken a more complicated system and language where you can speak more things and then some things are dropped out. You know, is it like in Newspeak where uh, words are removed from the English language? Because if you can't speak them, you're not articulating them, you're not thinking them, and therefore it isn't the magic of the word, if you will. So, um, yeah, I found that just incredibly interesting that there's that that mystery in um losing a significant portion of the letters in an alphabet have you ever used a rune set adam to i have i don't have one i gifted a set to uh andreas a oh. uh, guest of 13 questions and my friend you got you, you gave one to me as well i did carved into hematite rocks which is i did really freaking yep cool. and his i believe oh, what was it bloodstone maybe either that or red jasper i can't remember as a super i i uh started researching runes shortly after 
I started down the road in tarot just because they're both said to be divinatory practices. But yeah, I, yeah listen, uh, Andreas throws throws runes and he prefers it over tarot. Yeah, I was gonna say I would I would venture to guess that there's more of a uh, augury nature uh, nature to runes than there are to the tarot. Like uh, I don't think the tarot. After reading this book by Robert Place, anyway, the the, uh, the fortune telling aspect was kind of added, you know, later. So, not so with the runes. I don't. I don't believe. At least uh, I know that there's uh, reports from uh, Roman military expeditions of them observing you know, mm-hmm. barbarians, quote unquote, using you know, casting stones, lots, runes, whatever you want to call it. Speak, speaking of the Romans, who of course were masters of dice. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. I, I shared it in the chat here as well, because th- that story made me think of this also. Um, and it's a story by Atlas Obscura in which they found these decodehedrons in uh, Roman um, like settlements or you know excavation sites. And it's essentially a dodecahedron, but on each point, there is a little knob. And there's a hole in the center of each one of these flat sides on the dodecahedron, and it's ha- it's hollowed inside. And nobody knows why these things have existed, what they would be used for. Um, but they've only been found in uh, the colder climates, the the places that are the, the warmer climates, they have not found them. What I find interesting is it, it's a complete mystery that's lost. Uh, there's no real like writings of what these were used for by the Romans. It seems to be just a ubiquitous item that they would need no writing for. But the most fascinating thing I've seen is people have taken these and used them to weave gloves that with the way that it is set up, you have the ability to create and weave five fingers while creating a glove and a handhold. And people do this and make gloves using this device. And it just seems like such a, a simple knitting tool that if that's not what it's used for, I am even more interested. And I'll never know. Not unless I get my time machine. So dodecahedron, that's a 10-sided die then, right? Yep. Yeah. I've, in the link, if you click the link, they've got a nice image of one of the ones that has been found uh, in a Switzerland uh, Roman city. And you can see other versions they have in the, uh, the museum as well. Some of them um, have more holes in the center, like you might be weaving more uh, pieces of thread through. And then you also see different size sizes holes that are placed, which could represent maybe, you know, which fingers would be used. This article starts out with a Buck Rogers uh, reference. That's that's amazing. Buck Rogers. I'm even more amazed that you know who Buck Rogers is, Bill. I barely know who Buck Rogers is. Buck, he's a Flash Gordon's contemporary. Yep. Buck Rogers. That's uh that's the inspiration behind Duck Dodgers. Is it? Yeah. Daffy I Duck. know that uh Graco, the largest spray and manufacturing company, has a their most popular texture nozzle looks like a Buck Rogers t- the end of his gun did. <laughs> and it is officially unofficially called a Buck Rogers nozzle. So for anybody that's not familiar buck rogers and flash gordon were both serial episodes that ran way back in black and white tv days where you could see the strings coming hanging down black and white tv days yeah (laughs) yeah a long time ago i don't say a long time ago but you know 
Did you know? Okay, so people born in this year have the potentiality to see the year 3000. That's kind of mind blowing. Anyway, out of, out of left field. But yeah, you could see the, you could see the strings. Bill, <clears throat> yeah. Check the math on that. 3000. Oh, wait, no. Never mind. 2100, not 2000. In the year well, 3000. Well, yeah. can, can we upload our consciousness yet? Is that... Yep. So that's going back to 1950 to 1951 when the first version of Buck Rogers aired. Yeah. Definitely some. I believe Flash Gordon was available on Amazon for free last time I checked. If anybody wanted to check out some old school sci fi flicks. But keeping with the. archaeological finds i guess that when the dodecahedron was found in switzerland i've got this story of an atlantean sculpture found in or around chichen itza and this is from ancientorigins.net ancient-origins.net uh, it says, an historic Atlantean sculpture unearthed at Chichen Itza's new zone. In an exciting revelation for the archaeological community in Mexico, an Atlantean sculpture has been discovered on the path that will lead to a new section of Chichen Itza, known as Chichen Viejo. Such an item has never previously been found at the site. The intricately carved sculpture, standing at a significant 90 centimeters that's three feet portrays a character with arms elevated seemingly holding an object and adorned with an intricate attire the attire includes a headband a pectoral plate crafted from four presumably jade bead rows elongated earmuffs and bracelets notably the figure's facial features bear a striking resemblance to huastec evocations signifying a shared cultural connection. Diego Pareto Hernandez, the general director of INAH, unveiled this, this discovery during President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's morning press conference. He elaborated on the advancements in archaeological projects connected with the ambitious Mayan trains construction and the ongoing improvements of 27 archaeological sites around the mega project. The discovery of Chichen Viejo, a luxury residential complex that was lived in by the controlling elites, quote unquote, controlling elites of the sacred city was announced in February. These are the first resident residential buildings to have been found in the area and are situated about a two-thirds mile from Chichen Itza religious site. Hernandez emphasized the profound significance of the Atlantean sculpture, named for, although not directly connected to, the Greek god Atlantis, saying it hints at a cultural synergy between the Maya culture of Chichen Itza and central and northwestern Mexico during the terminal classic and early post-classic periods. That's around 880 to 1200 AD. Atlantean sculptures, commonly referred to, referred to as Atlantes, 
are stone statues of humanoid figures that often serve an architectural function as support columns or pillars. The term Atlantean derives from the mythological figure Atlas from Greek, Greek mythology, who was condemned to hold up the sky for eternity. Similarly, these statues are typically depicted as bearing the weight of the structure they support, much like how Atlas was depicted bearing the weight of the world or sky. The discovered sculpture's dimensions suggest it might have been a supporting part of a ceremonial altar. In Mesoamerica, especially during the post-classic period, Atlantes became a distinctive architectural feature in various regions. One of the most famous examples of Atlantean figures in Mesoamerica can be found in the city of Tula, located in modern-day Hidalgo, Mexico. This was the capital of the Toltec Empire. Hey, we know about the Toltecs and the Four Agreements, right? Uh, and, and it also features iconic columns in the form of warrior figures atop the temple of the Morning Star, which is uh, it's a name. It's not, it's not actually called the Morning Star. It starts with a T-L and ends with a T-L-I. So it's got about 15 letters in between. I'm not even going to pronounce to try to pronounce that. So, uh, But the figures are made of basalt, stand over four meters tall, and once supported the roof of the temple. The Temple of the Warriors in Chichen Itza features columns with similar warrior figures, reminiscing of those, reminiscent of those in Tula, further highlighting the connections or interactions between the Maya and the Toltecs. And the rest of the article is, well, that's not that long. Uh, Chichen Itza is not the only site bursting with exciting new finds in Mexico. Moving west, recent discoveries at the Palenque archaeological site are reinforcing its iconic stature in Mexican archaeology. As part of the Palenque archaeological projects, researchers recently discerned the temple of the foliated cross, tracing it back to 600 AD, and unearthed an architectural offering of two vessels, one containing neonatal skeleton remains, symbolizing the blossoming of life. Other finds just announced include a first-of-its-kind nose ornament engraved, engraved to personify the Maya corn god. The extraordinary piece was part of a ritual deposit placed in the late classic period to commemorate the completion of a building, a structure on which House C of the palace was built. Uh, a quote here from the director of Palenque Archaeological Project says the earthen matrix was very dark with a high amount of carbon and interspersed with seeds, fish bones, turtles, small mammals, obsidian blades, large pieces of carbon, and among them, a bone nose ornament. Additionally, the Mayan train project has shed light on an ancient lithic workshop dating between 600 and 850 AD offering insights into people of Palenque's ancient lifestyle. Uh, and they also found a Maya burial chamber in Palenque. And so, yeah, the main, the main point of this story was the, uh, the connection to the Toltec Empire and the Mayas. So, 
there is a small image of the Atlantean statue on an article for anybody interested. But uh, yeah, I was reading through this and I saw the Toltec Empire reference and what, uh, you know, a better way to remind us of the, the three masteries that the Toltecs have in their wisdom tradition, the mastery of awareness, which is kind of what you could say uh, the the almanac segment helps with, right? And the mastery of transformation. And then the third one is the mastery of uh, aware, or uh, I'm sorry, intent, which is a uh, God, right? Intent, um, love. So hopefully I'd like to think you could find all three of these masteries to some degree or another kind of explored more or less during this show. That's all there is with that story. No comments from the peanut gallery. Did want to bring up this one because it has to do with near-death experiences. And I know somebody very close to me who has had one of these, and it did turn out turn did turn out to be an out-of-body experience also, which I is, had one of those as well. I don't I think you told me but I don't remember all the details. Do you want to refresh do you hearing? Yeah, it was a uh the worst migraine I've ever had in my life in which I uh tried to call 911 but the I couldn't because the phone was too bright. I tried to get water from the refrigerator but just like couldn't. I somehow bounced off the fridge and hit the floor. Um, and yeah, it was really bad. And I had a, yeah, it, I popped out of my body and saw myself and all the pain went away and I was just watching myself. So how long were you out of body for? Was it just like a few seconds? I, or... have, I have no idea. The migraine lasted, uh, in its worst for the better part of 12 hours. So at that, it's, it's so hard to judge time within that. Like pain beyond yeah. pain, you can imagine that's, you know, beyond a threshold that's just, it, it cannot get worse. And I was going to say my experience with that too, that time, it just wasn't relevant anymore. Like it didn't, time almost ceased to exist, I guess. Irrelevant is a very good word. So. But you were you were above your body looking down, right? No. Well, I was off to the side and up a little at probably like a 30 degree angle. So maybe I was a few feet off the ground. Um, looking at myself from the side. From the side. Okay. That's not really my story to tell, but uh, I know somebody who was ran over by a vehicle multiple times and they went out of body because of the pain multiple broken bones and whatnot so maybe we'll have him on the show in the future to talk about it if he wants to but yeah this this is a newsbreak.com story and just is about jeffrey long who's a radiation oncologist in kentucky says that i've studied more than five thousand near-death experiences my research has convinced me without a doubt that there's life after death Jeffrey is also the founder of the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. And 
he says studying near-death experiences has made him a better cancer doctor ben were you going to say something nope i was just listening so uh this as told to essay is based on a conversation with jeffrey long it has been edited for length and clarity so jeffrey says 37 years ago i was an oncologist resident learning about how best to treat cancer using radiation these were the pre-internet days so i did my research in the library one day i was flipping through a large volume of the journal of american medical association when i came across an article describing near-death experiences it stopped me in my tracks all of my medical training told me you were either alive or dead there was no in between but suddenly i was reading from a cardiologist describing patients who had died then come back to life reporting very distinct almost unbelievable experiences from that moment i was fascinated with near-death experiences or ndes i define a near-death experience as someone who is either comatose or clinically dead without a heartbeat having a lucid experience where they see hear feel emotions and interact with other beings learning more about these experiences has fundamentally changed my view of the universe when i finished my residency I started the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I started collecting stories from people who had NDEs and evaluating them with the mind of a scientist and doctor. I make opinions based on evidence that came into this as a skeptic. Oh, and came into this as a skeptic. But in the face of overwhelming evidence, I've come to believe there's certainly an afterlife. No two NDEs are the same, but as I studied thousands of them. I saw a consistent pattern of events emerging in a predictable order. About 45% of people who have an NDE report an out-of-body experience. When this happens, their consciousness separates from their physical body, usually hovering above the body. The person can see and hear what's happening around them, which usually, which usually includes frantic attempts to revive them. One woman even reported a doctor throwing a tool on the floor when he picked up the wrong one, something the doctor later confirmed. After the outer body experience, people say they're transported into another realm. Many pass through a tunnel and experience a bright light. Then they're greeted by deceased loved ones, including pets, who are in the prime of their lives. Most people report an overwhelming sense of love and peace. They feel like this other realm is their real home. These experiences may sound cliche, the bright light, the tunnel, the loved ones, but over 25 years of studying NDEs, I've come to believe that these descriptions have become cultural tropes because they're true. I even worked with a group of children under five who had NDEs. They reported the same experiences that adults did. And at that age, you're unlikely to have heard about bright lights or tunnels after you die. Other people report seemingly unbelievable events, which we can later confirm. One woman lost consciousness while riding her horse on a trail. 
Her body stayed on the trail while her consciousness traveled with her horse as he galloped back to the barn. Later, she was able to describe exactly what happened at the barn because she had seen it despite her body not being there. Others, who hadn't spoken to her, confirmed her account. I am a medical doctor. I've read brain research and considered every possible explanation for it. What? I'm sorry, my computer no. had to go paw. That's okay. My apologies. I am so sorry. I thought you get really excited for a second. I was like, what? <laughs> yes. Uh, bottom line is that uh, none of them hold water. By them, he means the possible explanations for NDEs. There isn't even a remotely plausible physical, physical explanation for this phenomena. I've also studied fear death experiences, like near-miss car accidents. I take a particular definition for NDEs. The person must be unconscious. But there's another type of phenomena that fascinates me too, what I call fear-death experiences. These are situations where you feel your life is in imminent danger. It might be a near-miss car accident or a sudden fall. These people generally don't experience the tunnel of light, but they often report their life flashing before their eyes, quote-unquote. Uh, while some people with NDEs report these life reviews, they're more common with fear-death experiences. People even recall events from toddlerhood that they can't consciously remember, but that we can later confirm by talking with family and, and friends about it. Uh, studying NDEs has made me a better cancer doctor. While I am passionate about NDEs, my day job still revolves around helping patients fight cancer. I don't tell my patients about my NDE research. Eh, odd. And yet my work with NDEs has made me a more compassionate and loving doctor. I am able to help my patients face life-threatening diseases with increased courage and compassion. And passion. Uh, my goal is to help them have more healthy days here on Earth, but I firmly believe that if and when they pass, they will be at peace. That's the end of that article. Uh, it was found on Newsbreak. I don't know if I mentioned that. So I've never had any of those experiences. Wait, you know, I take that back. I think I've had a fear-death experience. I didn't leave my body. I was in, Adam, I think, I think Adam's heard this story. I was in the uh, Dominican Republic for a archaeological field school, actually, digging up uh, Captain Kidd's uh, pirate shipwreck a cannon. That was, that was a, uh, the underwater team, I was the land-based team. But anyway, we were staying in these these flats uh, that were used to be some kind of vacation spot in uh, in the Dominican. And it was a our I was roommating with another student from the university. We had our our room on the third level of this complex. My professor's room was on the second level. And during a rainstorm, I was trying to go from the third level to the second level and the steps are outside of course and uh, exposed to the elements and they happen to be made of marble so me being the uh, tall lanky person that i am i thought it would be a good idea to try to grab onto the sides of the railing and kind of swing down into the, the landing um, and kind of you know miss all the stairs plus it was raining at the time so less time outside means uh less time getting wet well I, as i started to uh 
brace myself and swing in, swing forward, right? My my head hit the walkway above where I where I was just coming from, and I landed on my back, right on my spine, and my elbow. Uh, split my elbow open, huge knot on my spine, uh, lost breath for what seemed like an eternity. Um, I just remember leaning over this railing because I was able to stand back up, thinking like, oh, this is, this is it. This is where I'm going to die. Because nobody, nobody knew I was out there. I was out there by myself, right? So that was kind of scary. But uh, yeah, I didn't have any... I don't think my life flashed before my eyes. It was just really scary. Because, uh, I don't know, being in the third world, I did have to get stitches. I had to go get stitches. Couldn't really, you know, it took us a while to find the hospital. Was it fear, or did you become at all comfortable? Or accepting? Um, I don't know if comfortable is the right word. Accepting, I guess. It was just like a, because the realization was like, it, it just became more... Uh, apparent and I don't know, real, I guess. It was just uh, like, okay, so this is, this is, this is it. This is how it ends. <laughs> that was, that was sad if that was going to be the, 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 the point. You know, the end of the, this incarnation until I respawn somewhere else, right? But taken out by 90 degree angles. Yeah. My height and 90 degree angles. And the weather. Climate change gave me an NDE. Just kidding. Uh, moving on to our, our next story is actually a follow up from one that we did a while ago. And it has to do with Avi Loeb, who, Adam is familiar with adam do you remember the story about uh me absolutely yeah uh he's recently updated his um his uh his blog and they have some exciting news so for those of you i did go back because i wanted to make sure that we covered the story before and we did i went back and found the article um but yeah avi loeb is a harvard uh, professor and he's a physicist I'll just read the article here. Uh, scientists claim that they have recovered mat material that originated outside of our solar system for the first time in history. Alien hunting Harvard physicist Professor Avi Loeb said early analysis of metal fragments his team recovered from the Pacific Ocean in June suggests they came from interstellar space. The remnants came from a meteor-like object that crashed off the coast of Papua New Guinea in 2014, which Loeb is not ruling out, could have been fragments of an alien craft. The team found about 700 tiny metallic spheres during the expedition, and the 57 analyzed contained compositions that do not match any natural or man-made alloys. The findings do not yet answer got me sorry the findings do not yet answer whether the spheres are artificial or natural in origin which professor loeb says is the next question his research aims to answer this is a historic discovery because it represents the first time that humans put their hand on materials from from a large object 
that arrived to Earth from outside the solar system. Uh, the, com the composition, the composition analysis of the sphere, sphere roll, sphere rolls, sphere rolls, sphere rolls, was was performed by Stein Jacobson in his Cosmochemistry Laboratory at Harvard University. That sounds like a cool lab. Cosmochemistry. Uh, Professor Loeb told DailyMail.com, "I was thrilled when Stein Jacobson reported to me." about it based on the results of his laboratory. Stein is a highly conservative and professional geochemist with a worldwide reputation. He had no basis, or I'm sorry, he had no bias or agenda whatsoever and expected to find familiar spherules, spherules with, with solar system composition. But the data showed something new, never reported in the scientific literature. Science is guided by evidence. Professor Loeb also told DailyMail.com that future research would answer whether the fragments are simply part of a space rock or the debris of alien technology that has been floating through the cosmos for millennia. For now, we wanted to check whether the materials are from outside the solar system, he said. The success of the expedition illustrates the value of taking risks in science despite all odds as an opportunity for discovering new knowledge. Loeb and his team pub published their study on the findings, which has yet to be peer-reviewed. It states the fragments, known as sphere, sphere rule, rules, appeared to be nested, suggesting that liquid drops engulfed smaller ones that solidified earlier. That's confusing. Uh, and textures on surfaces of the round objects point to a rapid cooling. In other words, they came in incredibly hot because of the friction of the atmosphere coming in at incredible speed. And uh, the most interesting part is its, its structure is stronger than any known iron meteorite. So already it has the integrity for entering in the atmosphere before it disintegrated. And the amazing thing is on this first expedition that they sent out, when they did the sleds, they were able to identify the debris field in which it is located. So the next thing they're doing is uh, they've already got their next um, or they're planning their next. I think it's on a ship called the Silver Star, too, of all things, is uh, going to be mapping the bottom of the ocean there. And they're going to be looking to see if there's any larger pieces that may have broken up or survived. And that is where you can really start getting uh, telling information instead of having to look at something, you know, that was obliterated and emulsified and then, you know, cooled. Um, maybe following, finding some parts that are intact. We're not, we're not hundred percent sure if this is actually part of a craft though, but it is from outside of our solar system. All they know is that it has some metals in it that are, uh, being looked at by our scientists for nanomaterials and different um different types of things and we find these in an abundance that we have not seen in other meteorites and that has um like isotopic identifiers that show that it is not from the solar system and the projection uh, that was given by um you know uh the government data coming through showing where it actually came from its trajectory 
uh, and through NASA determining that, you know, there's like a 99.99%, you know, chance that this was an interstellar object. So everything is lining up that this thing is stronger than anything we've seen before and was aimed at our planet and came from a very far distance. And it doesn't seem that far-fetched if you just think about, you know, what happens on another planet somewhere else if, you know, the Voyager craft intercepts it. Not even just like a probe directed at us, you know, a one-shot, uh, you know, vehicle, but maybe just a derelict piece of technology. Right, and that is the next... Uh piece of the puzzle he wishes to to unravel i believe so when the this story first hit the airwaves so to speak it was uh, just merely speculated that this could be outside of our solar system and now that that's that's been confirmed essentially is what the update is well the yeah the uh, yeah exactly based on the materials that yeah the the um yeah what it was made of the compositional um study yeah. so yes yeah, so the, the analysis of the fragments, they're speaking of minerals real quick, it was rich in uh, beryllium, lanthanum, and uranium, along with low content of elements that bind to iron, like rhenium, one of the rarest elements found on Earth. And something that I also learned uh, from that art, uh, his latest article that he posted as well here in the last couple of days is that uh, beryllium can actually accumulate in things in space. And so uh, the concentration of beryllium could also be an indication of how long it has been traveling, not just necessarily its original makeup. Ben, didn't you give me a piece of barrel? Is that the same thing? Barrel, beryllium? No, it's not. I don't think it's the same mineral. But yeah, I did give you a piece of barrel. Um, but I've been thinking about this a little bit on and off lately. Um, you know, with all the stuff in the media about disclosure and everybody seems to be talking about it and i it's kind of given me the opportunity to brush up on the lore and the history um because i haven't been a big fan in the past or it's not been a rabbit hole i've chose to dive down and uh it kind of comes up when i think about the one i saw too just in how it acted and how foreign it was flying right or moving through time and space um but it seems like they've fed us breadcrumbs that have kept up with our technology as well so like this new finding you know would we have been able to even analyze that 25 30 years ago or are we just now as a species and with our technology getting to the point where we can start figuring more out so they're feeding us a little bit more that's one of the deep um deep theories or threads that runs through uh ufology if you look at like whitley streber um and people saying you know there is a deep connection uh between all phenomena whether it's bigfoot you know poltergeist ufo ghosts um you know uh, religious experiences there's this thread that goes through them all and there's also a deep connection with death and dying and the other well, side and yeah that's i mean that's how i look at it with all of my experiences and it coinciding and leading up to the nde right it is the phenomena is all 
part of the same mechanism, but specifically with the UFO alien side of it, that it seems to be keeping up with our technology specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Like uh, Micah Hanks, who wrote that article on the debrief, also wrote a book called The Ghost Rockets. And you see this with the UFOs that they almost always seem to be a step ahead in our technology. Maybe UFOs isn't the right word, right? But anomalous things that people have seen in the sky, whether it was either, you know, uh, dirigibles like air balloons or different types of flying craft or ghost rockets, things that were just beyond our reach of technology. And I think it's interesting from just the the trickster aspect of life that there is something that is like uh, teasing the unknown and drawing us towards something. And then I also think that it could lead to things like um, we know that we have, you know, skunk works and we have all these other, you know, uh, you know, super secret aircraft and things that are being developed in secret. And uh, then there's things being developed by private entities and companies. And especially with all the stuff coming out by David Grush, uh, it's not just the government saying that, yeah, some of these private companies have developed their ability to track these and have either downed them on their own or found ones that were left behind on their own and it could even just lead to um you know also evidence of uh private corporations private entities companies that have had technology and been utilizing it you know outside the public sector and since that's something that goes on today i'd assume that it also went on 70 years ago 100 years ago and 200 years ago yeah and that's that's how my mind initially you know wrote off the my ufo sighting was like well that's just black mm -hmm. tech nobody knows about and they're you know i don't as the big one the whole the, it, it was such an event and the whole town was talking about it you know and there were multiple events throughout that time period and it just seemed i don't know like they were fucking with us right so i just wrote it off as human testing shit out but even that being uh you know part of the the outlaying of the technology and showing people and getting the story out there so that it's not as shocking to the masses right which are prone you know people a person is smart but people are panicky right yeah well and so. to me it's been a secret that's out there but not out there that there has been yeah. factions have been hiding a truth within it I have a copy of the, I think it's called the, like the fire officers disaster guide. And um, I found a copy and I may have taken photographs or not photographs, but photocopies of it. Actually, I did not do that. They've been destroyed. That never happened because that would be illegal. Right. But, um, uh, but it, it dictates what you do, what, what to ha do if there's an alien craft or a, a vehicle that crashes and it goes through the whole, like, um, you know, time loss, radiation, things like that, um, and how to treat. And just as interesting that the U.S. government for the Air Force had for all of its uh, cadets a guide talking about UFOs, um, you know, uh, that there was, you know, up to four different species, how to handle yourselves in situations if you encounter these. And once it was brought up to the public view, that was pulled out um, and not shown. So, like, these are these are heavily veiled secrets. And if you look at somebody just like uh, um, uh, John Greenwald, who created the black vault when he was a teenager uh really into ufos decided to do some foia requests and has expanded where he's got millions of documents on his website on all more order of things it's like 80 percent of the documents are not on 
anything related to UFOs, you know, um, name your topic. And he's pulled it. But um, he says the place where he finds doing FOIA requests, freedom of information requests, the most difficult, where things get stopped the most, where the orders are injuncted, where it doesn't seem like it should be, uh, or the paperwork is lost, the lies, the timing, the stringing things out for like six, seven, eight years. Um, that is all related to UFO and not to any of the other subjects. And to me, that's the most telling thing. It's it's not what you're being shown. It's what you're not being shown. Um, there, there's a famous video. I, I think I have to look it up. I want to say STS-48. It was uh, brought to the world's attention um, on, um, it was like e-entertainment and then um, uh, sightings. And it was done by... Uh, John Decker, who was a police officer um, who had had a UFO uh, sighting in Pennsylvania and got really interested in it and started investigating it, started UFO magazine and had one of some people or somebody come to him with a video because a long time ago, whenever they would launch um, a, a mission uh, with with um, the space shuttle, which would be the STS and then the, uh, you know, the launch number, they would have a non-encrypted uh, video feed that was going down from the satellite and back and people would record this and they recorded this video and sent it to him and said hey look at this and you see this light kind of streaking across uh, across the sky in the atmosphere and you see something um, you all of a sudden see it like take a right angle and shoot off into outer space just like disappears at unfathomable speeds and then something flying up from the surface that looks like it would be something being shot to intercept it um after this video was brought forward and shown the very next day the entire feed becomes encrypted and i remember seeing that as a teenager and i was like you know you don't need to tell me there's something there but once you start doing stuff like that you don't want me to know like what is it you don't want me to know and so uh, I'm a firm believer that there is a, well, look, David Grush is probably right. I'm a believer in Bob Lazar. So um, all the stories that people have told, all the experiences that people have had, um, all the cultural leakage, I mean, X-Files, all the movies, um, if, if you think the secret was kept, it hasn't been. Yeah, there's definitely some very, very compelling evidence uh, videos out there that can be found. I'm, I know that there's one I've posted on the Instagram, I believe, a couple of times. If not, I know it's on the Telegram channel, but you can see uh, sorties of aircraft flying you know, into the moon. Like they're there's a lot of anomalous stuff flying around and it's not surprising look throughout history look at cave drawings look at what people describe people from the sky coming down and what i find most interesting ben about um the ufos two stages because one i mean it's not to say there's ufo there's alien there's this if we even live in a teeming universe it might not be one it might not be a dozen and this might be why there's been different waves of different shaped craft but the one thing that follows through is the tic-tac and orb-shaped crafts that seem to have been reported, you know, as far back as time goes. And to me, that is so fascinating. Um, and especially once you start talking about like AI in the future and, you know, all the possibilities of different realities 
you know, it could be all of them. It could be ourselves interacting with us from the future, um, well, <coughs> other species and other realities and spiritual. That's the, that's the road it leads me down, right? The nature of reality and like thought forms, right? So the more energy the idea gets, the bigger it gets, the more real it becomes. And that <laughs> UFO alien sci-fi genre has been you know popular from the jump because it is that where our story comes from yeah. right look at the, the stories back, always come from the, the stars yeah go and back to the dogon 50,000 years of story right so so the the faster we develop with technology and and evolve with it you know the faster the thought forms evolve and the faster it becomes more real in our physical reality. You'll, I don't know if you're familiar with Laird Scranton. He's a linguist. Um, he's nope. wrote a ton of books on the Dogon. Um, uh, really fascinating guy. I've, I've had the, the great pleasure of spending many, many, many hours in his presence speaking with him. Um, and he has, he's done research on the Dogon and into their language and found these amazing connections because they have such an ancient language and ancient symbol system um, that it connect, connects to a whole bunch of other ancient languages and does a lot of verification for like different parts of China, um, um, uh, hieroglyphs, uh, Egyptian hieroglyphs, um, Buddha uh, text and writing and symbols. There's these deep connections. But one of the most interesting things that the Dogon talk about is that everything is dual. There's always like two parts. And one of the things that they see is that there's two universes Whenever a universe is created, they are also created in a pair and that there's a veil between them and that one is completely physical with the complete ability to act and the other is the complete in physical without the ability to act and that there's certain times throughout history. And I would equate this to maybe like the galactic sheet, um, the Mayans, maybe something on the electrical universe. This is my thinking, um, but at, they can come together and there's a certain time when they're more able to be um, the veil is thin, that there can be communication, there can be somewhat of an influence, but that this other side, these other beings, the, the, the attachment to the afterlife, this other thing says that trying to get us to do things is like trying to make um, grass grow by, by pulling on it. And so there could be this, this two sides, that deep Akashic record consciousness, you know, something along those lines that is absolutely influencing us you know, the muse, the creative, um, that's trying well, to record something else. The, the pair idea is interesting and it being one of the like oldest creation stories, you got to think it's, it would be more like cell division, right? So at, at one point there was one and then there was a pair and now, you know, we've divided into the quantum space, right? So it it could just keep going right everything being that fractal it can just keep going in, into the infinite the uh hopi also have a tradition of you know, two worlds i guess becoming one they, uh, I read this book a while back ago called The Book of the Hopi. 
by Frank Waters, and it's, it's, it's it describes basically the entire ceremonial uh, year and uh, of, of 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 the Hopi tribes, and they start out with the uh, they start the cycle with essentially around Halloween, and if memory serves, they essentially prepare half the village for guests, and then they leave. Like nobody's allowed in this part of the village because the star people or this is the time where the star people come back and stay with the, the villagers or you know the community they, they call them kachinas and there's also a, a name for the i guess sacred religious dolls that they would have have used during their ceremonies but the, the kachinas are, are star people essentially and they took uh, they took this pretty seriously if, if you were caught in that part of town during that time of the year i think that they would kill you so uh, the people would not not the kachinas right but uh yeah definitely this dual dual uh, you know as above so below kind of that kind of reminds me well uh, look everything is based on the um fibonacci right like this this beautiful sequence of proportions that makes up your body it makes up belief and everything gets divided gets bied look at your human body you know you've got two halves two sides two sides of the brain that are separated that communicate with each other it seems to be just an innate part of the way that life is built you know lightness and darkness in the sun things grow in the dark things decay when the sun comes out it sterilizes like it's like you, everything is built with a pair. And, but getting those two to reconcile, right? So the getting the light, uh, realizing the light in the dark as, as one is what leads to like that higher self kind of idea, right? When your angel and your devil on each shoulder are high-fiving, that's when your third eye opens kind of idea. So um but the it's the trinity in that in that respect right so the not just the upper and lower world but that we exist in the middle yeah dr uh jordan peterson uh put it very succinct succinctly to me or at least how i heard him say it where it's the idea that you know look everybody thinks the same all the awful thoughts that somebody else has had you've had them too and, you know, it's whether or not you've acted on them. But, you know, if you're going to protect your family from the wolves in the world, then you might need to be a terribly angry, ferocious, um, enforceful, violent person to protect your family, to do what's right in the universe. You might have to stand up to to some other darkness, to an animal, to a person. Um, and to have that within you does not mean that you are that thing. It just means that it is a part a part of you that you are who you are in the moment, I guess. But I, I that that uh, that analogy to me made it very clear, at least in my own world, that yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear if someone's attacking your your family, your child, um, the good father makes it makes it if they can, so it it ceases. Yeah, I do believe that uh, having a legitimate monopoly on violence is one of the 
defining characteristics of of a state, right? Who whichever group can, um, you know, legitimately, I guess. I, I would also impart on that a state but, of mind because I, I don't want to say almost without question across the board the nicest people that you will find the people that are in control of the situations are the people that know how to fight like really know how to fight professional fighters professional jujitsu black belts look at these people when they handle situations especially in the world of cameras where they're caught they have the experience they know how to handle something they're not scared they're not acting and reacting based on emotion they are in control they know what's capable especially with somebody who's doing jujitsu they have a different understanding of the world because they realize that there's, you know, these these rolling nerds. That there's, you know, all these computer programmers and people that could kill you because every time they get you in a in a bind, every time they tie you up and choke you out, they let go. You tapped. If they didn't let go, you die. So you're constantly getting killed and understanding there's all these people in the world. So when situations actually break out, like those are the people. They're they're not scared. They're not reacting. They're not trying to attack. It's so much of our reactionary fear and you know altercations happen between people is it's just a fear so i i i absolutely love how uh, people who become incredibly proficient in martial arts very often become uh incredibly kind and capable people yeah yeah they're leaders well they i mean yeah the leadership man because uh part of being a leader is you know uh it can be you know, law and order depending on how large your community is right but uh the quote that i was looking for was that according to weber the state is that human community that successfully claims the monopoly of the of the legitimate use of violence within a given territory so this is this is that would be the definition of a state right you can find well that. i mean on a fundamental level if you have the bigger guns or the bigger weapon or the bigger rock, the bigger stick, you're going to win the fight. Yeah. So this... that's why I never hang my hat on weapons or certain types of weapons because people are going to punch each other. People are going to throw rocks. They're going to throw a spear. They're going to make a knife. You know, uh, a weapon is just an extension of that where less capable people are more able to act uh, more impulsively. And that's really the only difference. If people had their ability to launch missiles at other people, you'd be hearing about that in the news regularly too. Yeah. Well, there. Uh, yeah, that's what. That's what. It's interesting to see the advent of drone drone usage in these more recent conflicts. So there's this story I didn't include in the in this week's show, but it has something to do with the uh, U.S. military essentially putting together a, a drone army, and over the next uh, few months. They're going to deploy it, so they're going to waste a lot of money. Yeah, uh, it's a money grab, would be my guess. Well, they're building out of cardboard now. I've, I've I've seen some prototypes that are just you know, you know, highly expendable, just yeah, like loading bombs. Yeah, lot lots of e litter out there. I mean, look, they did that during uh, World War II, where they had uh, gliders for paratroopers that were built out of plywood, um, and wood that they would just drop out to uh to glide people behind enemy lines. So yeah paper weapons makes sense to me Deep, effective. I'll sell it for you know two hundred thousand dollars and make even more money but uh, just to wrap up on 
the uh, political philosophy note just because i'm philosophy nerd but this is from uh from wikipedia it says while the monopoly on violence as the defining conception of the state was first described in sociology by max weber the weber i was talking about earlier in his essay politics as a vocation in 1919 the monopoly of the legitimate use of physical force is a core concept of modern public law which goes back to french jurist and political philosopher jean bowden's 1576 work uh it's in french and english philosopher thomas hobbes 1651 book leviathan so just a little uh political history philosophy lesson real quickly and there's one more story excuse me there's one more story i wanted to get to before we dive into uh neville goddard and the sabbath and this next this story is kind of a a continuation in the i guess you'll call we can call it the ripples in time segment of of uh excuse me of uh previously thought extinct animals coming back to life so this is from put that in the chat for you guys it's from the greek reporter.com and just really quickly a uh, prehistoric bird believed to be extinct returns to the wild. Uh, the recent release of 18 Takahe birds in this lake in New Zealand's southern island holds immense significance. These large flightless prehistoric bird species were once thought to be extinct and had not been seen roaming these alpine slopes for nearly a century. Takahe the unique creatures of New Zealand stand out for their exceptional qualities. These birds, like many others in New Zealand, developed without the company of land mammals. Instead, they adapted to take on the roles that mammals usually play in the ecosystem. The birds cannot fly, and they have an average height of about 50 centimeters. Records show that they've been part of that area since ancient times, dating back to the prehistoric Pleistocene era as suggested by remains found in fossils they're almost prehistoric looking when you look at them from the front their bodies can be can seem almost perfectly round with their blue green feathers they resemble a miniature earth placed on top of two long bright red legs uh, as o'regan an elder from uh, the not the tribe reflects Someone once called us the land of the birds that walk. In New Zealand, a notable conservation success story is unfolding as the once lost Takahe, ta, takahe birds are making a comes slow back. A slow comeback. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. These birds among these these birds among the rarest in the world have been declared extinct back in 1898. Their numbers have been severely reduced due to the introduction of animals like cats, ferrets, and rats by European settlers. However, in 1948, they were rediscovered, and since then, their population has been steadily increasing. So, I guess since 1948, they've, they've, been, they've been around, so this isn't a, a completely uh, new species just rediscovered. But, uh, yeah, certainly a very interesting-looking bird. It kind of looks... Like a like a giant like a dinosaur like a you know dinosaurs were they had feathers apparently and this is a, it's not like 
ferocious looking or anything. Kind of reminds me of a dodo bird. But uh, hmm. yeah, I saw a story on that too, and <clears throat> it was more that one linking it to the introduction of cats and rats. I uh, was. <laughs> The story I was coming at from more of the hunting sphere. And apparently when colonists started landing there, those birds are also delicious. And since flightless, pretty easy to harvest. Tasty Takahe birds. Takahe shishkaba. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they would be that hard to catch. Well, and there's no you know, predators, natural predators in New Zealand. So they didn't have anything chasing them around. That's it. It does kind of point out that, that you can, you know, we, I guess as humans can really manipulate the ecosystem pretty quickly because it didn't take that long for that bird to almost blink out of existence. Right. Right. Adam, you had the, did you want to mention this? new website is this what this is the new website put together by the pentagon for uh uap phenomena is that what this is aaro dot mil adam you're muted i don't know if you know that i don't know if you're you had shared uh, yeah so i've been talking on mute so sorry about that <laughs> no go ahead. uh yeah the, the first thing to look at there um is the twitter um, here going back a few weeks, uh, really started to, uh, make the rounds and it makes sense. It was actually over the last month. Um, if you go to the all domain anomaly resolutions office, um, after, uh, the government said, look, you, you've got to do uh, an investigation. They said, we're going to be open to the public. So on July in, let's see, uh, July 20th, 2022, they made their first and their only tweet. And it says, welcome to the official Twitter account for the All Domain Anomaly Resolution Office. Through this channel, we will provide updates and information relative to our examinations of unidentified anomalous phenomena across space, air, and maritime domains, to which they've replied, posted nothing. Uh, however, they did just put up a website. It's uh, aaro.mil.mil, military website, um, and which they have put up a, a whole bunch of information it's all old information so you're uh, not going to find anything new uh, but it is a good curated sec uh, selection of information for some things on there um i haven't had a chance to dive in uh, mostly just because um i'm pretty well versed and uh i know what they're telling me anyways uh already so um but it is interesting that that is going forward and at the same time um, the head, I forget his name, but the person who, uh, Sean Kirkpatrick answered to, who was the, uh, the head of currently is still the head of arrow, um, has been, uh, dismissed. He is no longer in that position and they've moved somebody else, um, to be answering, um, or for arrow to answer to, uh, I'm still convinced that it is just like, uh, all the other investigations that have happened in the seventies and the fifties, um, uh, it's going to just get, you know, shoveled under and uh, made to be impossible to get to. Uh, having said that, um, that doesn't mean I don't think information's coming out because um, within the last day, it's been um, 
I shouldn't say confirmed. There's uh, journalists now confirming that aside from David Grush, there are multiple other witnesses that have uh, circumvented going directly to Arrow and have filed for whistleblower protection, just like David Grush has. Um, and uh, it's postulated that some of these people say that they were in access programs with direct access to uh, craft and technology. So I'm 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 excited that we're we we probably won't get to see all the goodies, but um, the stories are going to come out. So do you think that this uh, this website is meant to like siphon off? whistleblowers that would have gone well it's a representation of all the information that they've been presenting so far and you know just if you look i forget how many cases it is they said you know we've we've solved all these it's like yeah but you've got over 800 cases that you didn't you know project blue book you know after all the whitewashing still had over 700 cases in which were considered to be anomalous and so many of those cases were washed from the records to begin with um that yeah i don't know it I this is just to me reaffirming all the things that have been brought forward in the past. David Grush isn't the first whistleblower. Uh, Bob Lazar isn't the first whistleblower. There have been many. Um, and strangely, their stories all seem to be congruent. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, I think this is a real active thing, a secret that has gone on so long that either because the secret is too disturbing to let out um or agreements or things have been made that are incongruent with um something you and i would agree to if we knew what it was and that's been hinted at by uh, grush in some uh internal emails that were related that uh there were agreements made and or sometimes if you get caught telling a secret for so long that if people find out that they've been lied to on this at such a, a, a massive level and with everything that's going on politically that you would lose the complete trust of the nation, which is already hang, hanging on by a thread. And I mean, that something like that could provide true change. Not in a good way, a destabilizing change, but, you know, sometimes you got to burn the forest down to, to be healthy again. Yeah, there's the amount of people coming forward now is, I mean, I, I think that it's always been not staggering, I guess, staggering. If you, Okay, so the it's reason, been, the whole it's reason. Been, it's been ridiculed publicly. It's been made to be a giggle factor that's been purposefully done to obscure it, to make it so that it's something that you're not comfortable talking about. But all you have to do is just look at the records of NICAP, look at the rep, the, the records of MUFON. Uh, just look at the literature on all the stories that have been told out there. You know, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of stories that that correlate with experiences that go back into uh, religious texts, religious paintings, cave paintings like. It has been ridiculed to such a degree that this was think about it this way, Bill, in the in the 50s. Like there was a UFO flap, you know, it was a huge thing. It was the biggest thing in the news in the 40s. 
Um, you you know, when the, the, the term uh, flying saucers is coined, there's inquiries in the 50s and 60s, then in the 70s, you know, then in the 90s, we've got them in the 2000s. This is something that people do take seriously, that people always have had experiences with. Um, and so it's, it seems if you're not paying attention to the field, it seems like it's underreported, but, you know, up until recently with social media, you had to listen to the big three news networks, the big newspapers, um, and that stuff was stuff. Editors wouldn't look at it. It was considered to be crazy. That's one of this is one of the things that drew me to Stephen Greer early on was that the amount of testimony that he's compiled based off of interviews from retired, you know, military personnel. It's not Greer's words, it's the amount of evidence that he's compiled. Like back when he first put out like his first documentary, if you go to his website, like this is all you can watch video testimonials of just person after person after person with these incredible stories of of you know, these encounters, and it's very obvious that there's, you know, well, and, and here's my favorite thing, David Grush, you've got a guy, who, okay, so you get legislation that's put forward that says we're going to create an all-domain resolutions office, uh, a place that's going to study this, it's being mandated by Congress, the person who's put in charge of going out and looking at the secret access programs, who has the clearances, a guy who worked for the geospace, uh, uh, program within the, the the pentagon like it's 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 as high as you go on intelligence at one point he was delivering the briefings to the president this guy has all the clearances and his job was to go and say are there any special access programs that are hidden that are covering up um advanced technology that is not of uh this world and he went out looked spoke with over 40 people and came back you uh emphatically and said absolutely i have I have gone out. I've done what I was supposed to do. I found evidence that these programs exist, that they are being hidden. I've been told not to go any further. And then uh, after this, he starts facing reprisals, having his clearances pulled, um, things that they are currently in uh, uh, legal action with um, because he is an actual whistleblower. Uh, even more importantly, the uh, former head of the intelligence um Oh my gosh, the head of uh, the National Intelligence Committee, I think it is. Anyways, it's it's the guy who makes sure that um, that like the CIA is in check, that you're doing what you're supposed to. He acts as like a liaison. Um, he he was in that position. Uh, he's the one that took the um, I'm sorry, he the inspector general. That's what I should say. So he um, he gave he went for whistleblower protection. He hired an attorney that used to have this position. That attorney went ahead and forwarded to the office. They said that this is a credible threat, that we verified his information, we've spoken with other witnesses, that he has identified, and we find that this is um, uh, credible and imminent. So he's then reinstated all of his uh, clearances, all the reprisal stuff, it's given back to him. Uh, he's put back on duty. Um, that guy left that position at that lawyer firm and is now personally representing David Grush in this entire thing. And so, yeah, there's some major things going on behind the scenes. But for people who who will poo-poo David Grush, he is a whistleblower that was put in a position 
to do a job and says, I found something and it's not being reported and I've tried to report it and I've reported it to Arrow. I've reported it to Kirkpatrick himself. Um, and this information is not being acted upon. Um, and that's why he went for whistleblower protection status. So um, from there, if we start to get the actual witnesses, the people directly involved in the access programs, whether you believe Bob Lazar or not, we start getting more and more credible names coming forward. Um, there is a precedent where there could be an avalanche within this field. And I mean, it would be amazing. I, it, it, it's, it's dumb to say, but just because you know something, just because you know all this stuff exists, once the populace knows, I mean, we are powerful when we put our minds to things. You know, if we put our minds to this type of technology, what it says, if we can look at it instead of um, focused on all the technologies that we are now, are now, I don't know. I think it's going to be amazing. It will be, especially like how you said that we're, we're very powerful when we put our minds to things, because that is a perfect jumping spot to enter into the sword segment. Like I mentioned before, we're we're going to get to the Sabbath, which is something that uh, we've been trying to do for the last few weeks. But now that we that everybody is here, that will that can't be anyway. I thought it would be a good time to to talk about this. And so uh, this reading is I'm going to say about two and a half pages. So. Not uh, front, front, back, right? So page is front. One page would be front and back. So we've got two of those plus a half. Oops, sorry. Just knocking things all over the place tonight. But without further ado, uh, Neville does start off this chapter with a uh, Bible quote. This is from uh, Exodus thirty-one fifteen and Leviticus twenty-three three. Apparently, six days work shall be done but on the seventh day there shall be unto you a holy day a sabbath of rest to the lord these six days are not 24-hour periods of time they symbolize the psychological moment a definitive subjective state is fixed these six days of work are subjective experiences and consequently cannot be measured by sidereal time for the real work of fixing a definite psychological state is done in consciousness. The time spent in consciously defining yourself as that which you desire to be is the measure of these six days. A change of consciousness is done in these six creative days, a psychological adjustment, which is measured not by sidereal time, but by actual subjective accomplishment. Just as in life, just, just as a life in retrospect is measured not by years, but by the content of those years, so too is the psychological interval measured, not by the time spent in making the adjustment, but by the accomplishment of that interval. The true meaning of the six days of work, creation, is revealed in the mystery of the vow which is the sixth letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the third letter in the divine name, yod heh vav -Heh, as previously explained in the mystery of the name of Jehovah, which we have not covered yet on this show, by the way, uh, Vau 
means to nail or join. That's B-A-U, by the way, saying that correctly. Bah. The, cr the creator is joined to his creation through feeling. And the time that it takes you to fix a definite feeling is the measure is the true measure of these six days of creation. Mentally separating yourself from the objective world and attaching yourself through the secret of feeling to the subjective state is the function of the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, vow, or the six days of work. There is always an interval between the fixed impression or subjective state and the outward expression of that state. The interval is called the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the mental rest which follows the fixed psychological state. It is the result of your six days of work. The Sabbath was made for man. Mark 2.27 This mental rest, which follows a successful conscious impregnation, is the period of mental pregnancy, a period which is made for the purpose of incubating the manifestation. It was made for the manifestation. The manifestation was not made for it. Automatically, you keep the Sabbath a day of rest, a period of mental rest, if you succeed in accomplishing your six days of work. There can be no Sabbath, no seventh day, no period of mental rest, until the six days are over, until the psychological adjustment is accomplished and the mental impression is fully made. Man is warned that if he fails to keep the Sabbath, if he fails to enter into the rest of God, he will also fail to receive the promise. He will fail to realize his desires. The reason for this is simple and obvious. There can be no mental rest until a conscious impression is made. If a man fails to fully impress upon himself the fact that he now has that which heretofore he desired to possess, he will continue to desire it, and therefore he will not be mentally at rest or satisfied. If, on the other hand, he succeeds in making this conscious adjustment so that upon emerging from the period of silence or his subjective six days of work, he knows by his feeling that he has the thing desired, then he automatically enters the Sabbath or the period of mental rest. Pregnancy follows impregnation. Man does not continue desiring that which he has already acquired. The Sabbath can be kept as a day of rest only after man succeeds in becoming conscious of being that which before entering the silence he desired to be. The, the Sabbath is the rest I'm sorry, the Sabbath is a result of the six days of work. The man who knows the true meaning of these six work days realizes that the observance of one day of the week as a day of physical quietness is not keeping the Sabbath. The peace and the quiet of the Sabbath can be experienced only when man has succeeded in becoming conscious of being that which he desires to be. If he fails to make this conscious impression, he has missed the mark. He has sinned, for to sin is to miss the mark, to fail to achieve one's objective, a state in which there is no peace of mind. John fifteen twenty two. 
if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin. If man had not been presented with an ideal state toward which to aim, a state to be desired and acquired, he would have been satisfied with his lot in life and would never have known sin. Now that man knows what his capacity that his capacities are infinite, knows that by working six days or by making a psychological adjustment, he can realize his desires. He will not be satisfied until he achieves his very objective. He will, with the true knowledge of these six workdays, define his objective and set out becoming conscious of being it. When his conscious impression is made, it is automatically followed by a period of mental rest, a period the mystic calls the Sabbath, an interval in which the conscious impression will be gestated and physically expressed. The word will be made flesh. But that is not the end. The Sabbath, or rest, which will be broken by the embodiment of the idea, will sooner or later give way to another six days of work, as man defines another objective, and begins anew the act of defining himself as that which he desires to be. Man has been stirred out of his sleep through the medium of desire, and can find no rest until he realizes his desire. But before he can enter into the rest of God, or keep the Sabbath, before he can walk unafraid and at peace, he must become a good spiritual marksman and learn the secret of hitting the mark or working six days, the secret by which he lets go of the objective state and, adjust him, and adjusts himself to the subjective state. This secret was revealed in the divine name Jehovah and again in the story of Isaac blessing his son Jacob. If man will apply the formula, as it is revealed in these Bible dramas, he will hit a spiritual bullseye every time, for he will know that the mental rest, or Sabbath, is entered only as he succeeds in making a psychological adjustment. I'm adjusting my microphone. <laughs> the story of the crucifixion beautifully dramatizes these six days, psychological period in the seventh day of rest. It is recorded that it was the custom of the Jews to have someone released from prison at the feast of the Passover, and that they were given the choice of having released unto them either Barabbas the robber or Jesus the Savior. And they cried, Release Barabbas, whereupon Barabbas was released and Jesus was crucified. It is further recorded that Jesus the Savior was crucified on the sixth day, entombed or buried on the seventh, and resurrected on the first day. The Savior, in your case, is that which would save you from that which you were not conscious of being, while Barabbas the thief is your present conception of yourself, which robs you of that which you would like to be. In defining your Savior, you define that which would save you, and not how you would be saved. Your Savior or desire has ways ye know not of. His ways are past finding out. Romans 11.33 Every problem reveals its own solution. If you are imprisoned, you would automatically desire to be free. Freedom, then, is the thing that would save you. It is your Savior.
Having discovered your Savior, the next step is this great drama of the resurrection. The next step in this great drama of the resurrection is to release Barabbas, the robber, your present concept of yourself, and to crucify your Savior, or fix the consciousness of being, or having that which you would save, or of having that which would save you. Barabbas represents your present problem. Your Savior is that which would free you from this problem. You release Barabbas by taking your attention away from your problem, away from your sense of limitation, or it robs you of the freedom that you seek. And you crucify your Savior by fixing a definite psychological state, by feeling that you are free from the limitation of the past. You deny the evidence of the senses and begin to feel subjectively the joy of being free. You feel the state of freedom to be so real that you cry out, I am free. It is finished. The fixing of this subjective state, the crucifixion, takes place on the sixth day. Before the sun sets on this day, you must have accomplished the fixation by feeling, it is so, it is finished. This subjective knowing is followed by the Sabbath, or mental rest. You will be as one buried or entombed, for you will know that no matter how mountainous the barriers, how impassable the walls appear to be, your crucified and buried Savior, your present subjective fixation, will resurrect himself. By keeping the, by keeping the Sabbath a period of mental rest, by assuming the attitude of mind, that would be yours if you were already visibly expressing this freedom, you will receive the promise of the Lord, for the word will be made flesh. The subjective fixation will embody itself. And God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Hebrews 4.4 4. Your consciousness is God resting in the knowledge that it is well, it is finished, and your objective senses shall confirm that it is so, for the day shall reveal it. And that is the Sabbath, according to Neville Goddard, written in 1942. Uh, truly some sage wisdom there, in my opinion. Uh, one of the things that did pop out to me as I was reading this is the uh, Bible verse, uh, Romans 11.33, Your Savior or desire has ways ye know not of. His ways are past finding out. So. This, to me, is, is comforting because it says that you don't have to worry about the details. You don't have to worry about the how or when it's going to happen. Well, yeah, the when is, is, is in your control, right? But the how, not so much because it's, that's, that's not the, the important part. The important part is defining your objective. So... Uh, taking the stress out of how that's going to uh, manifest itself is, is freeing because uh, you don't have to worry about uh, you don't have to worry about the details, right? So uh, it's also reminiscent of uh, Vedam Zealand in Reality Transfer, in that uh, you don't he he doesn't really uh, give you steps on the in between, right? But he definitely tells you how to get from point A to point B. But the steps in between point A and point B are, aren't, aren't really our concern. So that was just another um, red that I was able to connect to some of the other past 
uh, books that I've read. So, uh, what what did you guys think? Yeah, it makes sense. You, uh, good luck fighting the ocean. You ain't getting through that current unless you swim with it, and you can't predict it. So, yeah. But we can choose where we want to go, though, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah but your destination, you know, you're going. How you're going to get there, man, you just got to keep swimming towards the place you need to go. And if the current is fighting you, you got to find another way. And I did, I did think that uh, his breakdown of the name of Jehovah was interesting. You know, I've heard of a lot of different uh, takes on that, and uh, I'm certainly not an expert on the Hebrew language. I find the uh, corn correspondences to the tarot deck tenuous at best. Speaking of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, but yeah. This is uh that's it. Ben, did you have any any comments on El Sabbath? Is that not it's probably not uh not what uh hopefully wasn't what you were thinking when we first brought it up because certainly when I after I got done reading the chapter I was not expecting to uh take that approach with it. But yeah, what did you think? No, it it was really interesting it's given me a lot to think about i'm actually excited to listen to that read through again um yeah i'm gonna have to sit with that for a while it's actually a new concept not new but you know a new look on a con on that concept so um appreciate you bringing that to light absolutely different perspectives all help in moving us along the path of enlightenment um yeah the uh i just i also it tickles me that uh he just comes out and just flat out says that it has nothing to do with side real time and i know that'll probably uh grind the gears of some of the more traditional uh religious folk out there but i don't know this 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 one makes a lot more sense to me than you know keeping track of six days in a row and then doing absolutely nothing on the seventh But that, that that's just me. If you uh, if you feel differently, you can email me at chrononotbill at mail dot com. <laughs> no, um, but uh, yeah, please do uh, share the show, uh, rate the show. If you found this at all uh, inspirational, if it has helped help you uh, through your day, or uh, just found uh, some some breadcrumbs throughout the episode, please uh, please do share it and uh, help spread the love however you can i will also mention that the uh, scalar energy session for next week which you can find at mysticalwares.com is going to be on digestion and gut health and the the page on mysticalwares.com you just go to uh, the menu scroll down and click scalar energy there is a little breakdown on that page of what exactly scalar energy is if you are not familiar with it, uh, but this is the uh, the frequencies that Derek uses in his machine are all based off of the work of Royal Raymond Rife. So definitely some some cool some cool technology being offered uh, for free, right? All you have to do is put your name in the hat, so to speak. So please go and check that out at 
mysticalwares.com. And until next time, Conan Carpe Diem.